to 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll pray over the greens um, before we get into the text here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 is where we're at. <clears throat> and we'll read, and then we'll pray and pray for the greens and this final stage of their adoption as well. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, let's stand together and we'll read <clears throat> kind of same exhortation this week as we had last week, you know, some special announcements right now as we're getting into some new seasons and so uh, met some longer announcement time. Uh, my word, we'll have you out of here by noon today, okay? So this is your chance to kind of stretch and uh, get all limbered out as we read before we get into it. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and also raised us up by his power. Will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, had a lot of announcements this morning, thinking of the Bonanos and just thankful for that mission-minded family and their daughters and their son who are just, they always have these other nations on their heart, Lord, and just pray over that trip, Lord, that you'd provide and that you have provided. We give you glory there. Lord, for the Greens, as they just um, are just being led to selflessly give of themselves, to a child who has no mom and has no dad. And, and Lord, you tell us in your word that true and undefiled religion is uh, loving and caring for the orphans and the widows, God. And we want to be a part of that. And so we don't want to be warehouses, but we want to be distribution houses with the, with the finances you've given us. And so we pray just that each member of this body would just be led by your spirit today and how to give. Uh, to give according and beyond our ability, that we'd be freely willing because, Jesus, you were freely willing and you are the greatest giver. So, Lord, just lead us in helping even the Bananos and helping the Greens, Lord. And, Lord, I pray that as we also are prepping ourselves for this core group season, that you would lead us by your spirit to be disciples and to make disciples, Lord. Lord, for those that are just absolutely not, I'm not going to do anything uh, with this church, nothing with this body beyond a Sunday morning attendee, Lord. Lord, would you just bring conviction, Lord? It's just, it's not Christianity, God. So, Lord, just move our body to be disciples, every member, every one of us, Lord. And as we get into your word today, Lord, what a, what a passage, what a passage, God. Very relevant for where we're at as a culture Wake us up, stir us up, Lord, rebuke us and correct us and love on us where we've fallen short, God, that we might see that love and be drawn to repentance by your grace, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Go ahead and be seated. A man once wrote a letter to Ann Landers seeking advice. She posted it in her column, Dear Ann. Dear Ann, I've been sleeping with three women for several months. Until a few days ago, none of them knew the other one existed. Things were fine. But by chance, two of them met, compared notes, and found me out. Now they're furious with me. What am I going to do? P.S. Please don't give me any of your moral junk. Signed, Trapped. Anne replied, Dear Trapped, the one major thing that separates the human race from animals is a God-given sense of morality. Since you don't have a sense of morality, I strongly suggest you consult a veterinarian. <laughs> Tragically, our society mistakenly sees human sexuality as little more than animal instinct. But sex carries with it profound spiritual implications. The Corinthian church that we've been studying and looking at the last eight weeks was filled with people who were full of all kinds of sexual sin, and they were reluctant to repent of their alternative lifestyles. Paul spoke, spoke frequently about the differences between good sex and bad sex. And he would refute in chapter 6 today their silly arguments where they would deny the lordship of the Lord Jesus over their sexual lifestyle. They would even use a cliche catchphrase, perhaps coined by Paul himself, to defend their immorality. We read that here in verse 12 where they say, all things are lawful for me. Paul says that, quoting them, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. This phrase may have been one coined by Paul. All things are lawful for me. It's one of the many ones in this verse that the Corinthians would use for their own carnal pleasure. They use Christian liberty to conceal all kinds of wrongdoing. All things are lawful for me. Hey, all things are permissible. This catchphrase, everything is permissible for me became an auto mode for them in defending their questionable freedom, some of their all-out sinful things, by saying everything is okay. Everything is lawful. Now, Paul was a great proponent of freedom. He used to be a Pharisee. He used to be a legalistic Jew. And he was realizing it one day where the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself, actually confronted him on the road to Damascus and showed him that it's not by external rituals and external religion that one is saved, but it's by grace that one is saved. And that brought low everything that Paul tried to bring to the table for his own righteousness. This statement, all things is lawful for me, doesn't need to be nullified, but qualified. We need to understand what is this freedom that we have in Jesus Christ? Are we too often like the Corinthians coming up with good reasons to do the wrong things? The idea that everything is permissible for me, that's a wrong, unbiblical stance. We know that everything is not okay. We know the scripture, scripture specially points out universal sin, murder, idolatry, stealing, breaking other commandments. We haven't been set free to sin in our Christian liberty. And we're going to look in chapter 8 and chapter 10 in the weeks to come at what real Christian liberty is. But today we want to just see that 
Christian freedom is not freedom to sin, but it's freedom from sin. We haven't been enabled in Christ to sin, but we've been set free from sin in Christ. And yet in in the church today, it's the same as the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago. We come up with these catchphrases so that we can do whatever we want. Oh, don't be legalistic. Or, hey, grace, bro, it's all about grace. I remember my pastor, Robert Hine, uh, he was a youth pastor before he was a senior pastor. Actually, the youth pastor at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And he put on a youth camp. And uh, one of the speakers that he had there uh, was uh, Rob Thought in his cabin. And he went to his cabin to just let him know something that was going to be happening. And uh, he walked on in and the guy wasn't in there. But he found this romance novel sitting on the bed that was nothing but pornography in a book uh, in word form. And Rob was flipping through this, and, he, and right then this pastor walked in, and he said, what is this? What is this that you've got here on your bed? And the guy's like, oh, it's, a, it's just a novel. And he's like, this is pornography, man. And the pastor said, Rob, grace, man, grace. Remember what we've been learning about at camp? It's all about grace. And Rob was like, you got to go. I'm sorry, but we don't have grace to sin, freedom to sin, It's not a license to sin, the New Testament tells us, but rather this grace has been set to set us free from sin, that we would not sin anymore, not be slaves of sin. All things are authorized. All things are lawful. Eating of meat offered to idols in this instance in the Corinthian passage in chapter 8, we'll see in chapter 10. Man, we know that it's just meat. We know that an idol is nothing. It's okay. Eat the meat. Unless it's going to cause somebody to stumble. Unless it's going to cause even yourself to stumble. These liberties that we have as Christians, things like consuming alcohol or watching movies or having an internet connection or smoking or chewing tobacco or drinking diet soda. Me and my buddy were like, that's a liberty we have, right? When you have 10 before lunchtime. Maybe not. I don't know. All things are lawful. But Paul says, he goes on and he says, you guys have been using my own phrase against me. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful or advantageous. As J.B. Phillips said, he was a uh, 1940s Greek scholar that translated the uh, New Testament that the youth in England might be saved and understand the scriptures. And he, he writes in his paraphrase of this verse, as a Christian, I may do anything But that does not mean that everything is good for me. I may do everything, but I must not be a slave of anything. All things are lawful for me. Paul's going to say it again in chapter 10, verse 23. But not all things are helpful and not all things edify. Not all things build one another up. The Corinthians had a misunderstanding of the freedom that we have in Christ. It's the same misunderstanding that pervades the church today. And that's why the statistic of premarital sex and divorce and family disintegration is the same within the church as it is within the world, among the evil, among the non-believers. It's because though many things are allowable, many things are not profitable, beneficial, helpful, or advisable. Leon Morris, the great New Testament commentator, says there are some things which are not expressly forbidden, but whose results are such as to rule them out for the Christian. 
these things aren't to just be allowed. Hey, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do that? And we know when teenagers ask that, hey, am I allowed to do this? What are they really asking? How close can I get before I get myself in trouble? How close can I get? It's a dangerous place to be. Now, we can err on two sides. We've studied this in the past. We're going to look at it more, chapter 8, chapter 10. The, 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 the pendulum swings in both ways when it comes to Christian limiters. We can either put a whole bunch of rules upon ourselves, rules that our fathers were never able to bear, rules and, and put legalistic trips on people, or we can swing the other side and use our freedom as an opportunity for sin and to destroy our brother. And we're going to see that, man, there is just a sensitive balance that we need to have. And whether or not we partake or enjoy these freedoms depends not on the freedom itself, but on the circumstances surrounding that potential for freedom. Freedom as Christians isn't the issue, but the circumstance surrounding it. In 1 Corinthians 8, we know idols aren't a problem, Paul says. But there's nothing wrong with food, food even that might have been offered to idol. No scripture forbids it. But if it's going to stumble my brother, or if it's going to lead me into sin, he says, you know what? I'm not going to be brought under the power of any. I'm not going to have it reign over me. I'm not going to be enslaved or owned by this thing. Paul's kind of doing a play on words here in the Greek. We're free to do whatever we want, Paul says. And in the context, the immediate context that we just read, he says, you're not free because you're having sex outside of marriage. We're free to do whatever we want, but you're not free, Corinthians, because you're sinning. You're out of control. You're mastered and you're enslaved by sexual immorality. That is any kind of sex that is outside of the covenant bonds of marriage. One man, one woman under the covenant of marriage. Anything else is entitled pornea in the Greek or sexual immorality or fornication. Boys to Men had the song back in the 90s, I'll make love to you. Well, you know what? It's not making love, it's making fornication. That's what it is. Ow. Sunglasses dropped on my toe and it really hurt. Sorry, Lord, I won't quote Boys to Men anymore from the pulpit. He says, you think you're free? All things are lawful for me. Don't use my own words against me, Paul says. You're not free. You're out of control. You're mastered by porn. Guess what? You're not free. Don't lie to yourself. Those of you that can't stop sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend or making out with them, guess what? You're not free. You're enslaved and you're in bondage. Those of you that can't stop going from one troubled relationship to another, you're not free. There is a sick cycle in America among the singles of hookup, shack up, breakup. Hookup, shack up, breakup. Hook up, shack up, break up. And many of you in this room, you know you've been a part of that. It's not freedom. Don't lie to yourself. It's slavery. And Paul is going to say that here in this very chapter. You're not free. You're not liberated. Just because you get to have sex with whomever you want and do as you please, you're actually showing that you're still enslaved. He who commits sexual immorality or fornication steps aside from his own legitimate power or liberty and is brought under the power of a harlot, the chapter tells us. Bengal says the power ought to be in the hands of the believer, 
not in the things that he uses. And so there's this generality of Christian liberty. Some of the things that I shared earlier, you know, whether that's consuming alcohol or smoking something or chewing something or whatever, or, or viewing something. But there's a difference in the liberty, and, and actually it's, it's not a liberty, of sexual immorality. The only freedom that we have with sex is within the confines and the covenant of the marriage relationship. Anything else, you forfeit liberty and you cease being your own master. John Calvin said, we are constituted as the lords of all things now in Christ. In such a way that we ought never to bring ourselves under the bondage of anything. And the Corinthians had brought themselves under the bondage of sexual immorality. It was a big problem in the Corinthian church. William Barclay translates this verse, All things are allowed to me, but I won't let anything get control of me. If there's anything in our lives that we can't give up, then it has been an, it has become an infringement upon our freedom. Anything at all. Do you have the freedom to smoke cigarettes? Well, does it own you? Then it is infringed upon your freedom. Alcohol, the same thing. Internet, the same thing. TV, the same thing. Going to movies, the same thing. Eating food, the same thing. If it owns us, it's, it's infringed upon our freedom. Now notice that Paul gives no nonsense about codependency or grandma and grandma's history or what our great uncle might have done or not done. Even genetics. He says, I will not be brought under the power of anything. I will not be mastered by it. No battle against heritage here. He says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If you're a Christian, you have the indwelling spirit. And by the power of the spirit, you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. If you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We see choice, choice, and that every sin is an inside job. Every time I sin, no matter who my dad was or my aunt or my great uncle or if I was breastfed as a child, what matters is are you going to be led by the Holy Spirit into obedience or are you going to let the flesh rule and master you? Because Paul says here, give the Lord Jesus all control. Give Jesus all control. We've been called to freedom, Galatians 5 tells us. We're called to freedom, but don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather through love to serve one another. We're not to use our freedom, Peter tells us, as a cloak or a vice. And, and later on, he says, to become slaves of corruption. John says, Whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So all things are lawful for us as Christians. We have an incredible freedom in Christ. But I will not be brought under the power of any. Verse 13 says, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. Okay, so that's a, a catchphrase. That's another one. First, it was all things are lawful. And now another phrase is foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. And Paul says, yeah, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord 
and the Lord for the body. And he moves to give us these seven truths about the body in the rest of this chapter. Now, the Greek thought back in the day where Corinthians was lo- where Corinth was located was that the body was a prison house for the soul. The body was nothing. Uh, a man named Epicletus, a writer back in the day, said, I am a poor soul shackled to a corpse. And because the Greeks had that idea, the body was denigrated, it was trivialized, it didn't matter what happened to the body. And because of that, two contradictory perspectives were developed. People would have severe asceticism, kind of like uh, monastic life, being a monk, and they would just live in, in harsh abuse towards their body, trying to bring it under subjection, sleeping on beds of nails and whipping themselves and wearing scratchy clothes. And the other side would be what's called brutism, where men or women would just totally indulge the body completely, saying that it was the body, it had no moral significance, I'm not doing anything to my soul now, it doesn't matter, it doesn't have any eternal consequence. And that's why they would say, hey, food for the body and the body for food. What they were saying here was, my body wants food, so I eat. My body wants sex, so I hire a prostitute. What's the big deal? Doesn't matter. It's just my body. It's going to die. It's going to stay here, and my soul is going to be eternal. That's not biblical theology. Biblical theology is that the body will be resurrected as well. The body will be resurrected to be with the presence of the Lord in glory. And so the first thing that we see regarding the body in verse 13 is that the body is for the Lord. So regarding our Christian liberties and our Christian freedom, our body is for the Lord. Moving on a little bit deeper because the Corinthians were saying, hey, I have Christian freedom to have sex outside of marriage. Paul would say, hey, that's not a Christian freedom. That's not a Christian liberty. The body is for the Lord. God will destroy the food and the stomach. This biological function is temporal. One bodily function is not like the other. The Corinthians saying food for the body and the body for food, sex for the body and the body for sex. But Paul says, no, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. The union that we have with the Lord will last for all eternity. Now, the foods, Jesus himself says, foods don't defile a man. What goes into the man, it'll just come out of the man. It'll be cleansed by the stomach. But what comes out of the man, that's what defiles a man. There's things that perish with the using, things that are foods. And then there's things that are inward manners of the heart. We're not better if we eat certain things and we're not worse if we eat certain things. Paul says, God will destroy both the body and both the stomach and the foods, but the body, that's something that's lasting. That's something that is eternal. The body is not for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Phillips again says, you cannot say that our physical body was made for sexual promiscuity. It was made for God and God is the answer to our deepest longing. Hopefully, as we've taught about sexual purity much in this church, your mind would go towards 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, where we see the will of the Lord for your life is holiness. The will of the Lord for your life is sanctification, that you would abstain from sexual immorality, that you would know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and in honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, 
Some people, everything they know about sex, they learn from, you know, late night TV or midday soap operas. Not a good place to learn about sex. That's passion, that's lust, that's what, how the Gentiles do love. That no one would take advantage of and defraud their brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of such. Paul says, I've warned you of this. I've warned you of this. The will of God is that you be sanctified, that you know how to possess your vessel. For God has not called us to uncleanness, but to holiness. And if you reject this, if you reject the notion of sexual purity that God has for Christians, you're not rejecting Paul. You're not rejecting Rory. You're rejecting God, who has lovingly given you the gift of his Holy Spirit. 14 tells us that God both raised up the Lord and will raise us up by his power. So the stomachs and the food, that doesn't matter, all right? That's gone, quickly. But your body will be raised up with the Lord. Now, remember last week, we were talking about how Paul always had eternity on his eyelids. Everything he saw, everything he did, he did through the lens of eternity and knowing what was coming, knowing what was, was forever, and he, and he does that again, and that's so good to do in all of our theology and in all of our questions. Man, let's, Lord, give us eternity in our eyelids. And here Paul does that. He says, God is going to raise up these bodies just as he was resurrected. So the second thing we learn about our body today, the body is resurrected by the Lord. We don't believe in the immortality of the soul, the Greek said. That's it. The, the immortality of the soul is what they would believe in. And Paul would bring something new to them and say, hey, the body will be resurrected. One day, we're going to greet again. We're going to touch again. We're going to shake hands again. We're going to welcome again. That means that our bodies are not dispensable. It means we need to take care of our bodies. The, they are the raw materials for a more glorious creation. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is going to tell us. So we shouldn't trivialize our bodies or denigrate our bodies or beat up our bodies. God has a plan for our bodies. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, The body is not like the belly. After having served a temporary use to be destroyed, therefore, fornication is not indifferent. Since it is a sign of one's own body, it's against one's own body, which like the Lord for whom it is created, it is not to be destroyed, but to be raised up in eternal existence. The Lord's coming rather than death is the great object of the Christian's expectation. Verse 15 says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. So something we learn about our body is that this body will have interaction with the Lord. When you come to Jesus Christ and place your faith in Jesus Christ and have received him, you're integrated into his family. He comes into you and you into him. God sees you in Christ. That's how he can stand to look at us is because we are in Christ. Therefore, everywhere we go, Christ goes. You might remember that. Everywhere we go, Christ goes. Paul says that in Romans chapter 12 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 5. He says we are all members of Christ's body, parts of Jesus' body. 
So Paul asks then, should I take parts of Jesus's body and join them to a prostitute? That's a rhetorical question you don't need to answer. Paul answers it himself. Certainly not. No way. Don't you know? Oh, pride, proudful Corinthians. Six times in this chapter, Paul asks these prideful Corinthians who said they knew everything. Don't you know that we are one in Christ? Would you take the members of Christ and join them to a harlot? We can think of ourselves now as totally interwoven with Christ. So for a Christian to take part in sexual immorality is to use part of Jesus's own body. Have you had that biblical worldview? Have you had that biblical worldview when you've talked to your children and your grandchildren about sex? Have you said, hey, by the way, this is Jesus's. This is Jesus's body. So everything you do, every decision you make, you remember Jesus is doing that with you. When you or I engage in immorality, we engage Christ in it. We can't be separated from Christ. Once in Christ, forever. We didn't just make a decision for Christ, walk down an aisle, lift up our hand, become religious, find a purpose, get a new start. We were absolutely, radically changed for all eternity and joined to Christ Jesus. John Calvin says, accordingly, if I have a connection with a harlot, I tear Christ in pieces So far as it is in my power to do so, for it is impossible for me to draw him into fellowship with such pollution. Verse 16 says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. We see sexual interaction makes two bodies one flesh. Genesis tells us that. Jesus quotes Genesis in telling us that. And Paul quotes Jesus quoting Genesis telling us that. That two become one flesh in this intimate union. One pastor said, I like to think of sex as super glue. It bonds two people together eternally. And when you try to rip it apart, you rip it apart broadly and violently, and it does much destruction. A husband and a wife become one flesh as husband and a wife that is under God's blessing. But a man and a harlot or a man and a prostitute or a man and his girlfriend or a girlfriend and her boyfriend or a casual one night stand, they join themselves together in a one way that's not a blessing, but it's actually a curse. By being joined to him or her in pornea, in sexual immorality, the believer constitutes someone else outside of Christ as the unlawful Lord over one's body. Verse 17 says, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. What is marriage an ultimate picture of? What is marriage and intimacy within marriage? What is it a picture of? It's that picture of our union with the Lord, becoming one spirit with the Lord. So verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Sexual immorality is specific sin against your own body. Learning something about the body today, aren't you? So what do you do? The only safety in temptations is flight. It's fleeing. It's a radical, strong, hard to pin down action, and it needs to become our habit. It's what Joseph did when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife in Genesis chapter 39. 
when time and a time and time again, she called for him to lie with her. He was a handsome guy. He had a lot of authority, had a great position. They were in Egypt in a palace. They were all by themselves, it says in the text. And he said, how could I sin against my Lord in this manner? And one day she grabbed a hold of his garment and said, lie with me for goodness sakes. And he said, "Mm -mm." and he ran in such a way, hard, strong to pin down, that he actually ripped his garment off of him as he ran out. She held it in her hand. And he was accused of rape and he was put in prison for years. But he was obedient to the Lord in fleeing sexual immorality. John Owen says, kill sin or sin will be killing you. If we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live. Kill sin or it'll be killing you. Don't ever have mercy on sin. Just to test it out. I wonder if it has the same pull on me as it did when I was 20. It does. Don't do it. Don't tempt it. Don't see how much you can take. When the apostle is exposing sin here, he doesn't trifle with sin, but like a mighty hunter in the Lord, he pursues it with all his might. His hatred for it is so intense. He drags it into the light. He shows us how hideous it is, how deformed it is. He hunts it. He stalks it and he kills it. And that's what we should do with sin and fleeing from sin. Every sin that a man does is outside of the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. There's something about this sin, and the Lord knows it, and the devil knows it, that is much deeper than overeating. It's much deeper than drinking too much. It's something that is against our own body. It sears our heart. It sears our mind. It sears our consciences, and it quenches the Holy Spirit. As we pursue intimacy without intention and communion without commitment. We have the worship team come on up as we close today. Verse 19 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? The sixth thing we learn about our body today is that it is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't you know that, Christian? You know, the world uses this like on their... Venus razor commercials for ladies' legs or whatever, and they're like, my body's a temple, you know? And what they say, and you've heard it, and you know what they mean, they mean, I'm a goddess, and this is my dwelling place, you know? (laughs) Sorry, I don't know. I don't even watch TV. Okay. (laughs) Are you laughing? Okay. What is referring to here is it's a temple for the Holy Spirit, there's two different words for temple in the scriptures. There's what, what refers to as the whole outer courts and the whole structure itself. And there's another word that means the specific holy of holies where the dwelling place of the Lord is. And that's the word used here. Our bodies are a dwelling place for God Almighty. And you are not your own. If you're a Christian, you are not your own. For you are bought at a price, verse 20 tells us. You've been paid for and with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. Something that causes us to really want to pursue holiness is the idea of redemption. Yeah, it's great to know that we've been made and it's great to know that we've been nourished by God. But when we know that we've been redeemed and paid for with such a great price, man, it moves us towards holy living. 
It moves us towards sexual purity to know that our bodies were bought at a price. And that's the seventh thing today. Bought not with corruptible things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The idea here is that of a, of a slave being purchased off the slavery auction block. And you have been purchased off that block. Today, you can, maybe even for the first time, you can be purchased by the blood of Jesus that you might find forgiveness and remission of sins. He paid for you. He redeemed you. The word redeem means to pay the ransom price. You were held hostage. You were abducted by sin and by death. And Jesus came as the hero to save you. Let him save you. Don't resist him. What a price. The very blood of the Son of God. There's the positive, you're a temple. There's the positive, you were bought at a price. There's the negative, now you're not your own. That goes against everything this culture would tell you. Why can't I just do what I want? Because you're not your own. Somebody loves you, somebody made you, somebody paid for you, someone's redeemed you. You're not your own anymore. Therefore, the imperative Glorify God with your body. Glorify God with your body. The word soul was actually added since the original text. Glorify God with your body. I want to close with this quote from a Spurgeon sermon. He says, I push you to this. You either were not so bought or you were so bought. If you were, it is the grand fact of your life. If you were, it is the greatest fact that will ever occur to you. Let it operate upon you. Let it dominate your entire nature. Let it govern your body, your soul, your spirit. And from this day, let it be said of you, not only that you are a man, a man of good morals and a respectable conduct, but this above all things, that you are a man filled with love to him who bought you, a man who lives for Christ and knows no other passion. Is your life marked with love for the one that bought you? That bought you with such a great price, his own blood? So when you hear men say, Spurgeon said, here is a body of Christians. What? Those Christians, those cowardly people who hardly dare speak a word for Jesus, those covetous people who give a few cheese pairings to his cause, those inconsistent people whom you would not know to be Christian professors if they did not label themselves, what such beings, followers of a crucified Savior, the world sneers at such pretensions, and well it may. We've been bought at a price. Our body is not our own. And if you are living your life as your own Lord still and your own master and making your own rules for sex and sexuality and theology and who God might be, you're not in Christ. You're deceiving yourselves. May we be struck with the implications of our redemption. May we be struck that God became flesh and dwelt among us and spilt his blood that we might be bought and paid for and set free. Not free to sin, but free from sin. Free to love the Lord, free to worship the Lord, free to love our brothers and edify one another 
and free to grow in our relationship with Jesus. We're gonna close with communion now and we're gonna have the ushers come up once again and get the communion and distribute it. And I'd just like you today once again to just hold the elements of communion in your hand as we sing this first song and just consider as Jesus says, this is my body as he held the bread. This is my body, remember it to be broken and crushed for you. And this is my blood that was shed for the remission of sins. We wanna remember the blood and the body of Jesus that purchased our salvation, that purchased our freedom. If you're not a Christian today, you don't have any part in communion with God until you receive what Christ has done for you on the cross. And today you can do that. Today you can respond. You can have union with the Lord. We just read of this beautiful union that takes place that's closer than that of a man and a woman. You can be one spirit with Jesus Christ. You can be bought and set free and redeemed. As the communion elements are handed out, let's just thank the Lord Jesus for the purchase price he paid. As he laid down his body unto death, as he allowed himself to be poured out as a sacrifice for sins, as a substitute for us. Let's close in song and we'll all partake together. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.